in Northern Ireland, here we are, three people from the Republic talking about their problems. They need to talk about their own problems and solve their own problems rather than getting caught up with constitutional issues. Like um, all this discussion on the protocol has distracted from the real issues that they need to address. Similarly, talking about a united Ireland, get on and make Northern Ireland work first. And then uh, you have the luxury of constitutional discussions. Um, in terms of the Republic, um, I think that the really big challenge is climate change because it is something where we have to spend money and take uh, you, you spend less, have, consume less um, because we've got to pay more in taxes to do the job over the coming decade. And the problem is that normally when politicians go out and knock on the door and say, vote for me, I'll do this and it'll be good for you. The politicians have got to go out and say, I'm going to do this and it's going to be bad for you. You're going to be worse off for this decade because your grandchildren and great-grandchildren need you to do this. It's a difficult sell for the political system. Yeah, we need to change the language It's as something like the great investment or something like that yeah. in our future and make, and make it a positive yeah. story rather than a negative one. I thought that the historical dimension of Vicky's article was superb and often overlooked because it's important to remember, as she points out, the securitized beginnings of policing on the island. And actually, the process through which the guards went through was a process of desecuritization. And I think there are important lessons in that if we're thinking ahead, if we're thinking about a new Ireland, a shared island, some different form of constitutional dispensation. It's interesting to draw on our own historical memory, our own historical resources, and think through what that desecuritization has looked like. And to some extent, there has been that desecuritization in Northern Ireland over the past 20 years, 25 years. But of course, that process is still very incomplete. And I think what's really interesting about that is that we have felt in Ireland like we don't have those processes to go through because we didn't have the conflict and we didn't have all of that. And so I think that's part of why we haven't addressed so many issues. But so much of policing in Ireland has actually been shaped by the troubles, you know, because the guards quite different to the PSNI or the IUC performs that security function. You know, we have like non-jury trials um, still in existence. So there's all of these legacies that we've acted like we didn't have to deal with, but they dealt with very clearly in the north. So, yeah, that that shifting between how securitized a police force, it's it, it's really there's been a real flux on both sides of the island. And, and so, yeah, it is. It's a really important point to consider in all of these questions. The North generally compares itself to other regions of the United Kingdom. That's particularly so, in my view, of the way the media operate in the North. They don't do North-South comparisons. And that, I think, over the long run, would change public opinion if there was better information. And that would certainly be something that those in the South who prefer a reformed version of their existing health service, they'll need to do that. Um, I think both John and I think there's a certain nostalgia in the North for an idealized version of the NHS. It's certainly not operating uh, cost-free because not only do people pay taxes, but they, in effect, have to join long queues, and that's a cost. 
It's not totally free at the point of need and the point of delivery. You have to wait. So um, what, we're, what we're seeing in the Northern response is a very strong preference for an ideal national health service being posed against whatever information they have about Southern performance. But that said, if you are going to advocate for a, a reunified Ireland, you need to think very carefully about what kind of uh, health provision you're, you're going to advocate for North and South. How do you reform the existing Southern system? Do you go for a version of socialized medicine? And what are the tax implications of that uh, North and South? The arrangements we made in, in 98 uh, were valuable, in fact, essential at that time in the sense that they gave nationalists the reassurance that the that their tradition would be regarded as uh, completely legitimate and on equal terms with unionism and that that would be reflected in strand one arrangements. In other words, um, uh, agree, decision, key decisions would have to be taken by a majority in both communities. That was the analysis then. I still stick to that analysis. I'm not yet of the view that we should uh, alter that. I think that you cannot rely on the concept of voluntary coalition, uh, or at least you cannot yet rely on that. Perhaps in some dim and distant future that might be uh, viable, but I think that you still, broadly speaking, have 40% in Northern Ireland who uh, respect respectfully belong to each tradition. Uh, the 20% is growing. I mean, the, the other category to which you referred, it's not growing at a dramatic rate. Obviously, we'd have to await the the next elections, and, and everybody can see that the demographics in Northern Ireland are changing. There are new issues on the political agenda. There are new voters who have different priorities. But in broad terms, I think that we still need to address the needs of what I would call the 40% and the 40%. That means I would not favour trying to move away uh, from... I don't want to be too absurd. I'm not saying that 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 we can't have some slight softening of the veto um, which is available at present. Uh, don't ask me in this podcast to go into detail about. It. I could imagine a couple of ways. You, so I could I could settle for something which would make it slightly easier to construct new uh, political combinations. Let's say I'm not using the word coalition, um, but I wouldn't want to go too far away from it. I think that uh, a voluntary coalition would be a free fall which would un undermine much of the progress and much of the confidence that we've managed to to build up. So the, 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 a key question is whether any rewriting of the agreement is possible. I think what comes out again and again through the conversations is that this isn't a, a conversation we'll get to have alone. Um, it's one that the European Union is going to be very deeply involved in and it's one that's going to require us in the South not to demand compromises from the North, but also really critically examine how we've been dealing with this issue ourselves and hold ourselves to account in a way that may be quite uncomfortable, I think. Thank you. Brian? I think the role of education is going to be critical here, both at the primary, secondary and public level. Community education, having town hall meetings, TV programmes, radio programmes, discussing, teasing out what the questions are, what the options are. It doesn't have to be an either or. There, it's, it, it's an opportunity to learn from what's worked well in both sides of the border, to embrace those and perhaps to create a better future for everybody. 
Yeah, no, it strikes me, in fact, that just personally, that this is, in fact, the kind of topic which might lend itself to a citizens' assembly in a way that fiscal, financial, economic, sort of pure institutional questions mightn't. But that's just uh, that's just me.